This is VOA News reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown. The Taliban government claims they didn't know about the top al-Qaeda leader living in their capital. AP correspondent Jennifer King has more. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan's Commission for Cultural Affairs had issued a statement condemning Sunday's drone attack on a residential home in Kabul. Today, the Taliban said they are investigating what they described as claims that al-Qaeda chief Ayman al-Zwari was killed. In a statement, the group says that it has no knowledge of al-Zwari's arrival and residence in Afghanistan. The Taliban had promised in the 2020 Doha agreement that they would not harbor al-Qaeda members or those seeking to attack the U.S., but U.S. officials say the home belonged to Interior Minister Ajuddin Haqqani the deputy head of the Taliban, who heads the Haqqani Network, an insurgent group that's been fighting in the country since at least the Soviet invasion in 1979. Jennifer King, Washington. U.S. FBI Director Christopher Wray says he remains worried about the potential for a large-scale attack planned or inspired by al-Qaeda despite the killing of its top leader in the U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan last weekend. Ray made the comments Thursday during a testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Ray said both al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, as well as their affiliates, intend to carry out or inspire large-scale attacks in the United States. Al-Qaeda chief Ayman al-Zawari, a key architect of the attacks of September 11, 2001, was killed during the U.S. strike early Sunday on a safe house in central Kabul. In his first public remarks about al-Zawari's killing, Ray said he was not surprised but disappointed that he, the head of the al-Qaeda, was found hiding in a safe house in Afghanistan. For more news, join us voanews.com. Via remote, this is VOA News. Russian prosecutors are asking a court to sentence basketball star Brittany Griner to, to nearly a decade in prison on drug charges. AP Washington correspondent Sagar Magani has more on the story. Griner had told the court she made an honest mistake in having cannabis oil at Moscow's airport. I've never meant to break any law here. And she showed little emotion as the judge sentenced her to nine years in prison. This is a miscarriage of justice. U.S. Embassy official Elizabeth Rood says the Biden administration will keep working to free Griner. President Biden calls the outcome unacceptable and urges Russia to immediately release Griner after a politically charged trial, which could lead to a prisoner exchange. Sagar Magani, Washington. Citing an unnamed official close to the case, the Associated Press is reporting that the former governor of the jurisdiction of Puerto Rico, Wanda Vasquez, has been arrested Thursday on corruption charges. The official who was not authorized to talk about the case and the two other unidentified people who were arrested along with the former governor. It marks the first time that a former leader of the Caribbean island and the U.S. territory has faced federal charges. A spokesman for Vasquez offered no comment on the report. In mid-May, Vasquez's attorney told reporters that he and his client were preparing for possible charges against her, but the former governor, that is, at the time denied any wrongdoing. Amid criticism, he has been slow to adequately respond to the fast-spreading outbreak of the monkeypox virus. A top U.S. health official Thursday declared an emergency response. The emergency declaration 
comes after a similar announcement was made nearly two weeks ago by the World Health Organization. The U.S. states of California, Illinois, and New York had also declared public health emergencies because of the spread of the virus, which causes a painful but rarely fatal disease. Robert Fenton, the National Monkeypox Response Coordinator, said the public health emergency will allow us to explore additional strategies to get vaccines and treatments more quickly out to the impacted areas. As always, for details on more news, please join us at our website, voanews.com, also on the VOA mobile app. I'm Michael Brown reporting by remote VOA News. Morning Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpuga in Washington. Today is Friday, August 5th, and here are some of the stories we're covering. Kenyans got polls in a few days. Uh, Maki's coalition took a beating, a very serious beating. I think their power has eroded so much. This is unheard of in, in Senegalese history. Legislative election results in Senegal show President Makassar's ruling party losing many seats, but with the position unable to secure a majority. Out of the ban by China of our world, I've lost 60,000 rands which is a lot of money to me as a small-scale farmer. All areas where wool is being produced, that those areas are not uh, in any way infected uh, by the disease. South African sheep farmers call on China to lift a ban on wool exports that's been in place since a foot and mouth disease outbreak in parts of the country. Those are more coming up on Daybreak Africa. Just a few days to the Kenya general elections and the presidential candidates are making their final rounds of the campaign. Some analysts fear that there might be some violence in some parts of the country, leading some countries to even issue travel advisories to their citizens not to travel to some parts of the Kenya. Vincent Makori is the editor of VOA's English to Africa TV. I reached him in Nairobi by phone and began by asking him if he thought the threat of violence was real. Well, Douglas, at the moment as we speak, in fact, uh, uh, walking around Nairobi, driving around the city, you would never even uh, realize that there's an election just a few days uh, away. People are going about their businesses as usual. It is calm. And the most interesting thing, you don't even see posters of candidates around, I suppose, because things have gone so digital. Uh, Perhaps they're reaching their supporters by other means as opposed to the past where you would see posters plastered all over the city on every wall, every uh, electric post. So it is a very interesting atmosphere. Uh, although when you talk to people, they, they do tell you they have some concerns. They are concerned that there could be maybe protests after the election, but it's not certain. Uh, what I know is that most of the young people especially are saying they have no appetite for any form of violence and they're not willing to be used 
by any politician to engage in any form of violence. In this election, uh, uh, the top two candidates have running mates who are female, and um, some people say that could be a good sign. What are the people saying about that? The female running mates have really energized uh, uh, the electorate in, uh, in the, across the country, especially the top uh, contender, Raila Odinga, choosing a female candidate who's very well known, who has been, uh, you know, fighting for democracy and uh, justice in this country for a long time. She has a history uh, that is uh, very well documented. So uh, many women have resonated with her, but even men have uh, kind of uh, looked at her as a woman who can be uh, trusted uh, to fight corruption, for instance, and to ensure there is justice, because it's something that uh, she doesn't just talk about, but she's been fighting for uh, for decades now. So. Uh, yes, we have to say for the first time in the history of the country uh, that you can see that a uh, female on the ticket has uh, energized the, the, the electorate in a, in a very significant way. And, and, and that might play a role uh, to some degree in, in how the elections turn out. This time, the realignment in Kenyan politics has been a bit unique. And there has been a bit of words exchanged between the two top contenders. Do you see the winner uniting the country after the election? You know, it is uh, Kenyan politics is very interesting. Sometimes the most acrimonious uh, relationships uh, during the campaigns turn out uh, so differently thereafter. You just have to go back in history in the last election and just remember how bitter uh, Uhuru Kenyatta was with the election was nullified. And of course, him and Raila at that time were exchanging the most vile things about each other. But uh, look at what happened. Uh, soon after the election, uh, it, it just took a few months and the two extended uh, hand of friendship in the most uh, famous now, the handshake, which led to a collaboration of the two, the president and the, and the former and the opposition leader, essentially. And, and so what I can say is that while there is this, uh, this bitter exchanges uh, uh, by between Ruto and uh, the president, the current president, and of course, by extension, uh, Raila Odinga. Uh, in Kenya's politics, after the elections are done and settled, you will be surprised. There's a chance that the same people will actually reach out to each other, shake each other's hands and hug, and will, believe it or not, probably, I'm just speculating, uh, end up actually working together. Uh, so I'm not necessarily thinking that there's going to be any bitter hatred uh, between or amongst these candidates uh, later after the election. Not in, not if I go by the history of this country. Officer Macquarie, the editor of VOA's English to Africa TV, he spoke with me from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Opposition politician Raylo Dinga is making another bid for Kenya's presidency on Tuesday, August 9th. By this time, he has the support of former rival and outgoing President Uhuru Kenyatta, who has served the maximum two terms. Viewers Paul Ndiho reports. Kenyans head to the polls to elect their next president on August 9th. Raila Odinga, the 77-year-old, long assumed to be the leader of opposition in Kenya, is contesting the elections for the fifth time. He has promised to focus on the cost of living if he becomes Kenya's next president. The prices of grain, of fertilizer, has gone on, the price of fuel has also gone up, and this has a telling effect on the cost of living of our people. 
We also are having some other crises, um, the issues of debt that we are also having to face. Uh, but um, we are confident that um, we can survive just like other countries are also surviving. Odinga is touting his long experience in national leadership, including a stint as Prime Minister. By this time, he has the support of President Uhuru Kenyatta. Odinga and Kenyatta set their differences aside four years ago after a bitter dispute following the 2017 vote. The allegiance has increased the pressure on Kenyatta's deputy, William Ruto. Tom Boyer, a governance consultant, says Odinga and his running mate, Martha Karua, are gaining momentum, especially after they have come out strongly on ending corruption. I think the combination of those two uh, personalities uh, leading, potentially leading a government that has articulated that it would seek to deal conclusively uh, with corruption is something that many Kenyans find comforting uh, and probably even leading a number of Kenyans to that side of the political divide. Odinga's last three runs for office in 2007, 2013 and 2017, he led his supporters in protest at the outcomes or challenged them in court saying his victories were stolen. Violent clashes have followed the 2007 and 2017 forts. Odinga and Ruto are battling it out on the campaign trail, especially in central Kenya, where Kenyatta's ethnic Kikuyu voters are up for grabs. Ruto was Odinga's ally in 2007 when the police cracked down on protesters and clashes eventually turned into ethnic attacks that killed more than 1,000 people in post-election violence. Ruto also teamed up with Kenyatta in 2013. At least 22 million Kenyans are eligible to vote on August 9th. Deputy President William Ruto is running in Kenya's August 9th presidential election on a platform of tackling corruption and growing the economy as the cost of living rises in the East African nation. David Doyle of Reuters reports. Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto says he'll publish government contracts with China and deport Chinese nationals working in the country illegally. That's if he wins the top job in a presidential election on August 9th. The policies are designed to appeal to citizens pummeled by mounting debt and a skyrocketing cost of living. We will put the brakes on more borrowing. It may not come to zero, but we will begin the journey to slow down on borrowing. Because... They say when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Kenya, which has a 2022 to 2023 budget of just under 28 billion US dollars, has a deficit of 6.2% of GDP and owes China about 8 billion dollars. That debt has funded an infrastructure building spree under President Uhuru Kenyatta. The contracts are not public, and some Kenyan organizations have lodged court cases to try to force full disclosure of the deals. Ruto says his is an economic platform. But that economic platform includes public resources, which means we have to tackle corruption head-on, right? And in fact, in this election, we are probably the only team that has a plan on how to fight corruption.
His main rival, Raila Odinga, has also vowed to tackle corruption and the cost of living. Ruto has painted the election as a clash between hustlers and dynasties. The hustlers are Kenya's poorest, who he has vowed to lift up. Dynasties is a jab at Odinga. This is his fifth crack at the presidency. It's also a dig at Ruto's current boss, son of Kenya's former president, Jomo Kenyatta. Uhuru Kenyatta has backed Odinga in a bid to sideline Ruto, who the president describes as unfit for office. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Douglas Mpuga in Washington. Today is Friday, August 5th. See to come on our program, Sports with Samson O'Malley. Legislative election results in Senegal this week show President Marc Sall's ruling party losing many seats, but with the opposition unable to secure a majority. Uma Bo, a political expert and assistant professor at Cornell University, spoke to Ricky Shyrock about what this means for Sall's agenda and the 2024 election. First, this election was between coalitions of parties, so there were no single party that went alone. And there were eight coalitions that were competing. And um, the uh, governing coalition, Beno Bokayakar, came out with 82 seats. Now the total number of seats in the National Assembly is 165. The opposition coalition, Yui, along with Walu, got less than uh, BBY. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what that means for the balance of power? Yes, so th- this is a bit tricky because legally speaking, Yewi has its own coalition and Walu has its own coalition. But they decided to join for, uh, forces informally in some areas. So what they will do, or what is expected that they will do, is that at the National Assembly, their representatives, their deputies. Well, they worked together and created this thing called inter-coalition, but legally speaking, it's not a thing because each coalition had its own, went uh, separately. But if you put together the seats that they gained, then they have a total of 80. What does this mean for Macky Sall's power? Because in his tenure as president, in his two mandates, he has really kind of um, gathered power in the judicial branch, in the legislative branch. Does this mean, um, you know, the balance of power might be more equalized now that uh, Mackey won't have as much of a hold on power? Uh, Mackey's coalition took a beating, a very serious beating. I think their power has eroded so much. This is unheard of in, in Senegalese history, that a ruling coalition would lose this many seats in the parliament. So that does a lot to even the morale of his uh, troops, of his, you know, of the people of his party. And when they start sensing that the, the balance of power may be turning towards Usman Sonko, you could also expect uh, some of the Makisal's people to start moving towards Usman Sonko, uh, looking forward to 2024. The other problem that Maki has is that his party doesn't have a number two. So his party does say him, and this is one of the huge mistakes that he has made. He has not cultivated uh, someone who could push forward the party when he's no longer here. 
And that may be something he could, you know, he would probably be focusing on in the next few months. But it may be a little bit too too late to be able to groom someone who could potentially be the candidate for his party in 2024. Because I don't think he will try to to run for for another term. I think this will be his final one. It's done. That was Omar Ba, an assistant professor at Cornell University. He was speaking to Rick Sherrock from New York State. South African sheep farmers are calling on China to lift a ban on wood exports that's been in place since a foot and mouth disease outbreak in parts of the country. China is South Africa's biggest wool market and the ban is creating painful consequences for farmers, especially for small-scale producers in the rural areas. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. Sheep farmers are feeling the full impact of China's four-month ban on South African wool, with the first wool auction of the season coming up in mid-August. The ban has caused losses worth some 734 million rand, or $43 million, says Leon de Beer, general manager of the National Wool Growers Association. The ban is unwarranted since South Africa has protocols in place that regulate the storage of wool after shearing as stipulated China imposed the ban on South African wool in April after cases of foot and mouth disease were reported in some parts of the country. De Beer says there are more than 40,000 small-scale black farmers in South Africa who produce close to 6 million kilograms of wool annually, 80% of which goes to China. These producers and surrounding communities will fall back into poverty should the Chinese market remain closed for wool from South Africa. Sepiwa Makinana is a small-scale sheep farmer in the town of Ugi in eastern Cape Province. He says the ban has been devastating for his livelihood, as well as for other farmers in his area, who he says just have wool sitting in their sheds, going to waste. Out of the ban by China of our wool, I've lost 60,000 rands, which is a lot of money to me as a small-scale farmer. South Africa's wool exports are worth about 300 million per year. Christo van der Rieder, head of AgriSA, a federation of agricultural trade unions, said the body is lobbying the South African government to take up its concerns with China. All areas where wool is being produced, that those areas are not uh, in any way infected uh, by the disease. And they can also ensure that uh, wool that is being exported are treated properly so that no spores of food and mouth uh, can survive. The Chinese embassy in Pretoria did not respond to repeated requests for comment. Wendy Lisilobo, chief economist at the Agricultural Business Chamber of South Africa, said South Africa also sells its wool to Mexico, the U.S. and elsewhere. But these are much smaller markets. South Africa is not really in a position to look for some of the markets outside of China because in the world, China continues to be the major buyer of wool. When the world's second largest economy stops importing your product, the effects can be devastating. A Chinese ban on Australian wines as punishment for Canberra's comments on the origin of COVID-19 hurt that industry. And in another political tit-for-tat, Beijing this week placed import bans on hundreds of Taiwanese food producers after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island. Of course, the South African wool ban is not political retaliation, simply the move of a government concerned about contamination. But the ban makes evident the danger of relying on one country's market. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. 
The UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan has decried widespread conflict-related sexual violence, which it says has become systemic and extensive in the country. Sheila Pony reports from Juba, South Sudan. The UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan on Thursday told journalists in Juba that conflict-related sexual violence against women and girls were widespread and systematic. A March 2022 report from the commission said widespread rape is being perpetrated by all armed groups across the country, often as part of tactics for which government and military leaders are responsible, either due to their failure to prevent the rapes or their failure to punish those involved. The UN mission in South Sudan says in the second quarter of this year alone, they registered nearly 1,000 incidents that included physical abuse and rape. UN Commission Chairperson Yasmin Swaka said women who were raped are suffering unending trauma and stigma. You need to see more accountability. And we don't only need to see the foot soldiers prosecuted. What we want to see is that the leadership of the different armed forces in fact hold commanders accountable because that is the only way that sexual violence in this country will stop when you put powerful leadership on trial. Commission member Andrew Klepp says the government must come down hard on those behind the abuse. Uh, This should be a zero-tolerance policy towards sexual and gender-based violence. And such a commitment could, we feel, be concretely demonstrated by standing down or even prosecuting senior government and military officials associated with such crimes. The commissioner said delays in implementing South Sudan's 2018 peace deal to end five years of civil war are fueling sexual and gender-based violence. This week, the UN Commission is on its 10th visit to the country to discuss findings and recommendations from its March report on sexual violence in the conflict. Sheila Pony for VOA News, Juba. South Sudan. And now it's time for Daybreak After Sports. And for that, we join Samson Amal in Abuja. Good morning, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Douglas. We begin the sports with a wrap of day seven highlights at the ongoing 2022 Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Nigeria's Folashade Olua Femi Ayo clinched the gold medal for Nigeria in the women's heavyweight powerlifting event as she broke the world record after lifting 130 kilograms, 150 kilograms and 155 kilograms to score a cumulative 123.4 points to win another gold for Nigeria on Thursday. Nigeria won the gold and silver medals in the event with Bosse Omolayo finishing second behind her compatriot to make it a Nigerian 1-2. 
South Africa's netball team beat Scotland 65-46 to in their final Commonwealth Games group march at the NEC Arena in Birmingham on Thursday and will now be playing Uganda later on today to fight for fifth sport in the competition. The South Africans and Scots were meeting for the very first time at the Commonwealth Games. However, the two had met nine times before with the former yet to lose the match. At the end of day seven, a total of nine African countries have won at least a medal. South Africa occupied the sixth position on the overall medal table, but number one in Africa with seven gold, seven silver, eight bronze medals. Nigeria is eighth on the overall medal table, but second in Africa with five gold, three silver, and five bronze medals, while Uganda is 13th, but Third in Africa with two gold medals. Kenya occupies the 15th position but fourth in Africa with one gold, three silver and four bronze medals. While wrapping up the top five is Cameroon with one gold medal. Away from the Commonwealth Games, Kalidu Kolebali has condemned plans by Napoli President Orero de Laurentiis to tell new signings they must agree to skip the African Cup of Nations. Last season, Napoli were without Cameroon International, Andre Frank Zambo, Angusia and Senegal defender Kolebali as they represented their nations in a tournament which took place in January and February. Kolebali, who has since moved to Chelsea, felt de Laurentiis was out of line with his remarks and claims the views will not be endorsed by many others at the club. Nobody can, uh, I think, can tell me to don't go for my national team. I have a lot, uh, lot of love for my national team, for my country, for the people where I play for. So if somebody tell me to don't go for, for my national team, I think that it's the only, only time that I can fight for with somebody. In cricket news, Ugandan cricket cranes will start the third leg of the ICC Cricket World Cup Challenge later on today against Jersey as they look to consolidate top sporting group B. Uganda opened against host Jersey who beat the East African country in Kampala League of the competition. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Douglas, in Washington. And that's it for this Friday, August 5th edition of Daybreak Africa. I'm Douglas Simpo.